Letter sixty two of the History of Lady Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The History of Lady Barton by Elizabeth Griffith. Letter sixty two. Miss Cleveland to Lady Barton. I have hesitated for some time, dear Louisa whether, in your present dejected state of mind, I should venture to communicate to you a story of much woe, which was contained in the papers of the unhappy young woman who died at Amiens. The diverting of any current must necessarily abate its force, and whatever can awaken our sensibility for the misfortunes of others must, at least for the time, render us insensible to our own. I believe, too, that comparison weighs much in our estimation of good and evil, and though a generous heart, even laboring under the severest calamities, may be incapable of forming a wish for relief at the expense of another's happiness, yet I am persuaded that there is a sort of alleviation to be found in reflecting that there are, or rather that there have been, others much more wretched than ourselves. Upon this principle, then, I shall send you this melancholy story, which I should never have been mistress of, had the papers in which it was contained, though unsealed, been properly addressed. But as they were only superscribed with initials, I was obliged to look into the contents in order to forward them to the person for whom they were designed. And I hope my taking a copy of them, for you and you only, will not be considered as a breach of trust, either to the living or the dead. As soon as my brother and sister went out of town, which was the first moment I had leisure, I opened the little trunk which Mrs. Colville's last messenger brought to Saint-Omer and which may properly enough be called the lacrimal urn of the unfortunate Maria, for in it was the tearful narrative of a life of sorrows deposited, and though she is now removed from a possibility of feeling them, they still retain the magnetic power of living grief, and must attract the sigh of pity from every tender, every feeling heart. THE STORY OF MARIA TO MR. EDWARD S. Will the most tender and affectionate of brothers, with patience, condescend to read the sad confession of a dying wretch, who owns herself unworthy of his kindness, yet, trembling on the verge of life, solicits to obtain his pardon and pity? Alas, my Edward, they will never reach me. No friendly voice can ever soothe my ear, or speak peace to my perturbed heart, for soon the motion of its pulse shall cease, and this poor shattered frame return to dust." Drop, then, one fond, forgiving tear upon these pages. Tis all I now can ask, or you, ere long, can grant. The story of my misconduct and misfortunes perhaps will reach you before this letter. How does my heart now bleed for that indignant grief your generous mind must feel for a beloved sister's infamy? I do not mean to extenuate my faults. Alas, they will not bear extenuation. And, conscious as I am of my approach to that tribunal, before which we must all ere long appear, deceit or falsehood would be as weak as wicked. Then hear the faithful story of my heart, and judge me as one erring mortal should another. In less than a year after you sailed for Bengal, our dear father died. What an irreparable loss was mine! I need not tell you that, as he was in the church, we were at once deprived of the principal part of his fortune, with his life." and that there did not remain above a hundred pounds a year being a life annuity purchased from my mother with her own portion to support her and me. 
the altered countenances and behaviour of those we had formerly called friends at Gloucester, made my mother determine on quitting a place where, from her want of knowing the world, she considered herself as particularly ill-treated. She was then first taught that prosperity is the cement of modern friendship, and when that fails, the tottering structure sinks into decay. She condescended to consult me upon our future scheme of life, though as I was not then fifteen, I was but ill qualified for an adviser. However, I had heard that Bath was a cheap place of residence, for those who settled themselves as inhabitants there, and as I also believed it to be an agreeable lively scene, I had often wished to go thither during my father's life, and therefore used all my little rhetoric with my mother to fix us there. I prevailed, and the first year we spent in it was by many degrees the happiest of my life. We lived in a small house near the cross-bath, with the greatest economy. My mother did not go much into public, but we met with many former acquaintances, who were so obliging to matronize me to the rooms, playhouse, and walks, as often as it was thought proper to let me appear abroad. You cannot, my Edward, have forgotten my face and person, and may suppose that I was not without admirers, in the midst of so many gay flutterers as abound at Bath. There are, I believe, fewer serious engagements made there than at any place where such a concourse of young people continually meet. Whether this is owing to the perpetual dissipation they live in, or to the constant rotation of new faces that appear there daily, is not to me material. My heart, alas, was but too susceptible of a tender impression, and Captain L., son to Sir Richard L., first inspired my artless bosom with love. During the first three months of our acquaintance, we saw each other every day, nor did the idea of parting or any other painful thought obtrude upon our minds to interrupt the pleasing delirium of our mutual fondness. Our happiness was then most certainly too great to last. A letter from Sir Richard L. to his son, acquainting him that he was promoted to the rank of captain, in a regiment which was then stationed in Ireland, with a peremptory command to set out thither immediately, was the first, and we then thought the severest shock that fate could inflict on us. Though my mother was extremely indulgent to me, yet, from a delicacy natural to young minds, I had never ventured to acquaint her with my attachment to Captain L. To this small but fatal error I perhaps owe most of the subsequent miseries of my life. The most intimate acquaintance I then had was a young married lady, about three-and-twenty, who seemed to have the greatest friendship for my lover, and tenderness for me imaginable. Her name is—but I will not expose her— for the sake of a respectable family to whom she is allied, though she has brought infamy and sorrows upon me and mine. I will call her Matilda. To her, then, I disclosed the anguish of my heart, at the sad thought of parting with my lover, and wept upon her bosom. She seemed to consider my distress as trifling, told me I had too much sensibility to be happy, and advised me to conquer it. Then added, laughing, these first passions are always troublesome, but you will not be so much affected at parting with your next lover. I was offended and disgusted at her speech. The very idea had profligacy in it. She quickly perceived my resentment, and had address enough to change her style and soothe me into the most perfect confidence. During the short time that Captain L. remained at Bath after his father's summons, we three were inseparable. He would have married me at that interval, but as he was not of age, being then but just turned of twenty, he could get no clergyman to perform the ceremony for us. At length the fatal hour of separation arrived. 
happiness and he were one in my estimation. They fled, alas, together. From his letters I received the sole consolation that could alleviate the pangs of absence. They were frequent and tender, yet I thought latterly that I sometimes discovered a little tendency towards jealousy in them. But unconscious as I was of having given the slightest ground for suspicion by my conduct, I thought it beneath me to enter into a particular defence against a general charge, and therefore suffered every hint upon this subject to pass unnoticed. We had now lived above a year at Bath, and my mother began to find herself extremely straitened in her circumstances. You had it not then in your power, my dear and generous Edward, to relieve her distress, and I am certain that one of the severest, which she herself felt, was her not being able to assist you in the first dawnings of your then infant fortunes. My mother, though past the prime of life, was still handsome, and at such a crisis dress is of much more consequence to a woman than at an earlier era. She had been used to elegance and affluence, yet she cheerfully resigned them all, and continued to wear deep mourning in order to ornament me with the remains of her former paraphernalia, and every little addition that she could make to it. Matilda used to take me with her frequently to the rooms, and generally invited me to private parties at her own apartments, sometimes with my mother, but oftener without. She always played high, and seemed solicitous to possess me with the same passion. I resisted the temptation, for some time, on account of the danger and indecorum of such a course of life, to which she replied that as cards were now become the bon ton of all civilized nations, the latter of my objections was sufficiently obviated and that, in order to guard against the former, the earlier I began to practice, the better. For as I should soon be a person of rank and fortune by the death of Sir Richard L., I could not think of living like a housewife in such an improved and enlightened age as the present, and that, as high play had now become the general amusement and occupation of all people entitled to associate in polite life, the sooner I was initiated into the arts and sciences of gaming, the safer it would be for my husband's fortune or my own." She would sometimes make me hold her cards while she sat by, and instructed me how to play them. Then she would make me join in the stake, and at last led me in to adventure for myself, on her promise to lend me what money I might lose, till I should be in a condition of repaying her. I am convinced that there is but one step easy to avoid in vice, and that is the first. The fear and disgust with which I had engaged at play at the beginning wore off by degrees, and habit had seduced my mind into such a passion for cards in a short time that I regretted the Sundays that my mother confined me at home after the church service was over to read proper discourses and listen to her most excellent instructions. Mr. W., an elderly gentleman of fortune, used generally to be of our parties. He seemed to distinguish me in a particular manner and used to favor me at play, which, as soon as I discovered, I immediately resented and declared I would lay down my cards if he should ever again attempt to pay me the least compliment of the kind, to the disadvantage either of himself or any of the rest of the company. This proper reproof of mine obliged him to restrain his too indelicate gallantry towards me for the future. My card account preserved itself pretty even for some time, without giving me occasion to trespass on the credit which my friend Matilda had made me so voluntary a proffer of, till one night that I happened to be let in by her, to engage at loo, which was a game I had never played at before, and knew so little of as not to be aware how deeply I might be involved upon the turn of luck against me. The stakes were not high, but as the forfeits were unlimited, 
I found myself indebted to Mr. W. in the sum of thirty guineas when the party broke up. I applied to my friend for the money, but she put me off at that time by saying that I should try my fortune again the next evening at her apartments, and that she would then put whatever balance should appear against me on a proper footing for payment. I was tempted to venture on a second essay at the same game, and concluded the night with doubling the debt to the same person. I then claimed Matilda's promise, but she answered me with great coldness, and a constrained smile, that my creditor was a gentleman of large fortune, and, as he had made her a confidant of his partiality in my favour, she should think it a breach of honour to take me out of his hands by releasing me from so trifling an obligation as this was. The surprise and alarm I felt upon this occasion is not to be expressed. It was too surely a presage of all my future miseries. I began to find that I had been most treacherously dealt by. I retired to my chamber, without speaking even to my mother, and passed the night in walking about distractedly, and crying out, "'How shall I be ever able to discharge this dangerous debt?' or how render a justifiable account of my conduct, either to my mother, to the world, but more especially to my dear Captain L. I confined myself at home for several days after this adventure, during which time Matilda came often to solicit my returning into the world again, and affected to ridicule my prudery, in being rendered so uneasy about so insignificant a circumstance, which, she assured me, was but one of the common events of life. However, I continued resolute in keeping myself retired, and remained inconsolable on this unhappy incident, till I received a letter from Captain L., which I opened with transport, hoping it would calm my mind and restore my peace again. Alas, what an aggravation to my misfortune and distress did I meet with there! He told me that his regiment was ordered to America, and that he should embark with it in less than ten days, which time was elapsed at the moment I received his letter. He added that my conduct had convinced him that, if he should never return to England, I would be easily consoled for his loss, though he should never cease to regret mine, wished me every happiness that a life of dissipation could yield, and bade me farewell, forever. My mind already disturbed and agitated, this cruel letter almost unhinged my reason, and sunk me into the most pitiable state of dejection. My mother, who was ignorant of the real cause of my disturbance, apprehended some heavy disorder to be falling upon me, and attended me night and day with the fondest anxiety imaginable. For some time I continued in a state of the profoundest melancholy. At length the voice of nature waked my reason. The tears and sighs of a fond parent by sympathetic force attracted mine, and called forth all my gratitude. I strove to hide my anguish, even in smiles, but it still preyed upon my tortured heart, the shame of having carried on a clandestine correspondence with a lover, who had now so plainly cast me off, prevented my revealing to my mother any circumstance of a connection, which I then considered as disgraceful to me. But I flew directly to Matilda, who had been my only confidant in this secret, and communicated the letter to her. She received me coldly, as she had done before on my former difficulty, told me that this too was but another of the common events of life that the most constant lovers were not to be considered more than perennials, but that bath passions never lasted beyond the season, that they were inspired by the heat of the waters and cooled as they did. What makes girls so woebegone, said she, upon such disappointments, is the overweening conceit that they are too apt to frame of their own consequence. But they must abate considerably of their romantic self-sufficience before they will find themselves in the station where nature has designed them. A toy, 
a rattle, which ten will play with for one who will think of becoming a serious purchaser. Such maxims as these, whether true or false, were not likely to assuage my grief, and I returned home the most unhappy creature breathing. I accused Captain L. of falsehood, of perjury. A thousand times, alas, in vain, did I vow to cast him from my heart and memory forever. Pardon, thou dear departed shade, these and all other injuries I have unwittingly been the sad occasion of to you. During my confinement, Mr. W. made the most constant and obliging inquiries about me, and in the most friendly manner offered my mother a house he had near the hot wells at Bristol, with the use of his carriage, servants, etc. As I continued in a very low and languid state, even after my recovery, change of air was judged necessary for me, particularly as the physician who attended me apprehended my falling into a consumption. I had, however, a very strong objection to accepting Mr. W.'s obliging offer, from an unwillingness to receiving farther favors from one to whom I was already too much indebted. But this difficulty was a good deal obviated by his declaring that he was engaged on a party for two months to visit Paris, and during that time both his house and carriage must be entirely useless to him. At my mother's entreaty, and not opposed by me, Matilda consented to accompany us, and I own I felt a gleam of joy at removing from a place where every object reminded me of my unhappiness. I did not then reflect that I could not fly from myself, and that neither happiness or misery are local. Mr. W. accompanied us to Bristol, and put us into possession of a very elegant house, in which he left four servants to attend us at board wages. There was an ample supply of tea, wine, sweetmeats, and every elegance, which he insisted on our using as if they were our own, and took his leave in the politest manner, earnestly requesting that he might find us there at his return. The waters and the change of scene certainly conduced to the recovery of my health, but peace and cheerfulness were both estranged from my sad bosom, and the only moments I enjoyed were those in which I could prevail on Matilda to listen to my griefs. I soon discovered that she grew weary of the painful office. She was totally immersed in gaiety, and used oftener to rally than soothe my affliction. Under all the disadvantages, which the gloomy veil of sorrow had cast around me, a Yorkshire baronet, Sir James D., saw and liked me. He immediately addressed himself to my mother, and was by her most favorably received. She was overjoyed at the prospect of what she called my happiness, and spoke to me of Sir James's proposal with transport. This was the second outrage, if I may so call it, that my heart had suffered. I fell into an agony of grief, and before I could recollect myself, or she prevent me, I vowed to heaven in the most solemn manner that I would never be Sir James's wife. Even at this moment, Edward, I behold the figure of my astonished, my offended mother. She had, however, so much reason at command, as not to urge my madness farther, but quitted the room with a look of indignation, mingled with surprise and sorrow. In a few minutes I followed her into her chamber, and found her in tears. I could not bear them, Edward. I fell upon my knees before her, implored her pardon, and offered even to sacrifice myself by marrying Sir James D., rather than render her wretched. She answered with the utmost calmness, I fear, Maria, it is out of your power to prevent my being so. You are unhappy, my child, and I must suffer with you. I hoped, but it is over. For be assured that after the vow you have so rashly made, no power on earth should force me to consent to my child's perjury. 
Sir James shall have his answer. But let me now inform you of a secret I wish to have concealed forever from you. Penury and want surround us, and we shall soon be given up a prey to them. We must return to Bath no more. I will mortgage our little income to pay our debts. In some obscure corner we must labor for our bread, help to support ourselves in honest indigence, and strive to humble our minds to our conditions. I do not condemn you, my child. Affections are not to be forced. I flattered myself that your youth and beauty might have obtained an advantageous match, which would have been a support to me, and an establishment to yourself. Sir James D.'s proposal was beyond my hopes, but I do not wish to render you a victim for my sake, nor shall this subject ever be mentioned more between us. Oh, my brother, think what I suffered while my mother spoke. I would at that moment have died a thousand deaths to have made her happy, yet even then I inwardly rejoiced at being relieved from my apprehensions of marrying a man I could not love. You may suppose I uttered all that gratitude could dictate from my mother's kindness, and promised for my future life to know no will but hers, talked of contented poverty, preferring a humble lot with peace of mind to splendid misery, and strove in vain to combat with her sorrows. On this occasion I not only assumed but felt a degree of cheerfulness to which my heart had long been a stranger. I triumphed over Captain L.'s unjust suspicions. In the midst of poverty, I rejected an advantageous settlement, and despised a title which must be bought at the expense of love. I expected Matilda would have applauded my heroism, but was disappointed. She disapproved my conduct, called me romantic and absurd, condemned my mother's want of spirit, and said that had she been in her place, she would have compelled me to marry Sir James D., and made me happy in spite of my own folly. In about four days after this event, Mr. W., whom we had imagined to be in France, returned to Bristol. As I was sensible of the highest gratitude towards him, I confess I felt a degree of pleasure at his arrival, and received him with all the marks of regard due to a friend. There was a vacant apartment in the house which he asked my mother's leave to occupy. She certainly had not a right to refuse, yet I could perceive that she was vastly embarrassed by the request. The next morning she told me that she was determined to quit Bristol immediately, though she knew not where to bend her course, as she did not think it proper to remain longer in Mr. W.'s house. As this person was near fifty years of age, I had never considered him in any other light than as a father. However, the impropriety of living under his roof any longer struck me as soon as it was mentioned. I told her I was ready to attend her, when and wherever she pleased. She burst into tears and said, "'Alas, my child, who will receive the friendless widow and her helpless orphan?' At that instant, Mr. W., who had overheard our discourse, came into the room, and taking my mother's hand, said, "'Behold in me, madam, a protector and a son who will think himself happy in making you so.' The first emotion of my heart at this declaration was gratitude." Modesty alone restrained me from embracing Mr. W. I cried out in an ecstasy, "'Oh, sir, you are too good, too generous. How shall we ever be able to make you an amends?' He instantly replied, "'It is in your power, madam, to overpay all my services. I ask no more than that fair hand can give, but then your heart as well as person must be mine. Without the first, the latter would be worthless. I will not at this moment expect your answer.' You are fully apprised of your mother's sentiments and situation, and you alone can tell whether you choose or not to dry her tears. He quitted the room directly, 
but he might have remained there and talked for an hour without hazarding any interruption from me. I was absolutely petrified with horror and surprise. Before I could recover myself, my mother, with her eyes still streaming, threw herself on her knees before me, and pressing my hand to her heart, said, I do not ask you, my beloved child, to sacrifice yourself for me. But, oh, consider, my Maria, to what insults and misfortunes your innocence and youth must be exposed when you shall lose even the poor support you have in me. I know I cannot long endure distress. My death must leave you a prey to every ill, to every danger. You will then reflect with grief and shame on that false delicacy that actuates you now, and vainly lament the loss of a fond parent, whom you have suffered to sink with sorrow to the grave. I could bear no more. I fell on my knees before her. I clasped her in my arms and bathed her bosom with my flowing tears, while I cried out, Oh, take me, sacrifice me, do what you will with me, I will not be a parricide. But give me time to conquer this poor heart, and tear my L's much-loved image from my breast. At the name of L, my mother started up and raised me with her, then, looking at me with unutterable anguish, said it must not be, if your heart feels a passion for another object, I will much sooner die than make you wretched. But who is Mr. L., and how has he deserved Maria's love? Shame kept me silent, but when my mother repeated her question, I replied, Do not press me farther, madam. Matilda can inform you both of my weakness and misfortune. As I wished to retire upon the instant, I opened a door that led by a few steps into the garden. In my confusion, I missed my footing, and fell from the top to the bottom. My mother flew to my assistance, but could not raise me. She called for help, and when Matilda and Mr. W., who were in the garden, lifted me from the ground, I could not stand. I was carried into the house, and a surgeon sent for, who acquainted them that I had dislocated my right ankle. In the midst of the pain I suffered, even during the action of setting my ankle, I secretly rejoiced in this accident— as it must, at least for some days, retard an event to me more horrible than death. My heart was overflowing still with fondness for the faithless L, and I was sensible of too much respect for Mr. W. to love him. The second day of my confinement, my mother told me that Matilda had informed her of every particular relative to the attachment between Captain L. and me, that though she considered it as a childish and romantic affair on my side, and a mere matter of gallantry on his, Yet her tenderness for me had made her consent to Matilda's writing to him, and acquainting him with every particular of my present situation. And if, in answer to that letter, he should declare a serious and honourable passion for me, she solemnly promised never to oppose my inclination, but cheerfully wait his return, and yield her consent to our union. But if, on the contrary, "'Stop there, my dearest mother,' I exclaimed. "'You have outgone my wishes.' For if Captain L. should hesitate a moment to receive me as his wife, not only my hand, but my heart shall then be free, and gratitude to the best of parents shall enable me to bestow them unreluctantly on any person whom her prudence shall select. My mother embraced me, and bathed my cheeks with tears of fondness. At that moment I thought myself the happiest of mortals. Matilda joined us, and read the letter she had written to Captain L., I did not think that it sufficiently described either my affection or my distress, but as my mother approved of it, I did not presume to make any objection, but only engaged her promise to add a defense of my conduct from the misapprehensions or misrepresentations he seemed to have conceived or received before with regard to it. You know, my Edward, that my mother was integrity itself. 
she could not therefore bear to be guilty of the smallest deceit. And though Mr. W. had not pressed for any answer to his proposal, on account of the accident that had happened to me, she resolved to tell him that there was a friend in America, without whose consent I was determined never to marry, that this person had been written to, and that he should be informed of his answer the moment it arrived. Mr. W. received this information with a very ill grace, but acquiesced so far as to say that he could have no doubt of this unheard-of guardian's consent to such an offer as his, and as an answer might arrive before I was perfectly restored to my health, there was no great harm in asking it. But he did not suppose that we should be weak enough to refuse his alliance, even though this particular friend might not approve of it. My mother, though extremely disgusted at the roughness of his reply, concealed the coarseness of his expression from me, and I considered myself extremely obliged to him for not persecuting me any further, for the present, with his ungracious and unwelcome passion. Matilda was obliged to return to her house at Bath, and as my mother spent most of her time in my chamber, and that Mr. W. was not permitted to make long visits to me, on pretense of the necessity of my being kept quiet, he grew weary of passing his domestic hours alone, and to my very great joy set out for London. I have written so long, my dear Louisa, that I am scarce able to hold the pen, but I could not possibly stop in this interesting narrative, such I hope you will think it, till I came to what may properly be called a resting place. For though we do not leave Maria happy, her hopes and fears are held in equipoise, and this perhaps may not be one of the least eligible situations in human life. Since I wrote to you, I have had a letter from Mrs. Walter. My apprehensions for her life are increased by it. They more than preponderate against my hopes. My spirits sink with them. But I am in a gloomy mood at present. I will try to shake it off. Lord Hume will assist me. I hear him coming upstairs. Till tomorrow, farewell, my loved Louisa. F. Cleveland End of Letter 62